But uh, I would ask if we could this morning stand and read together uh, Genesis 11, verses 31 through Genesis chapter 12, verse 9. It is our habit to stand in the reading of God's word because of the holy regard with which we have for it. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. You might have the NIV before you, so it would be a slight variation in the translation. Terah took Abraham his son, and Lot the son of Haran his grandson, and Sarai his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife. And they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Iran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran. And they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem, to the oak of Moreh. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. Please be seated. Let's bow our heads together for, for prayer if we, if we could. Heavenly Father, it is always with a great sense of feebleness that I come before you when it is my opportunity to share something from your word. Realizing the destitution that is within me and that there is nothing within me that could, I could set before you that would give me any favor or merit or any such thing. But Lord, I pray today that as we are assembled together in his place and as we now pause before your word, that you would have your hand upon me and that you might take this frail and feeble body and that you might empower it with your spirit, and that you might speak for the sake of your glory and that you might encourage your people assembled here together in this place. Thank you, Father, for your word. And be honored and glorified in these moments. Now we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The last time we came to this book in Genesis it was in September. And we have so far, as it relates to this specific text, spent two messages and we have focused primarily upon the sovereign God, call of God upon Abram's life. 
This morning I'd like us to just review briefly some places where we've been, and then I would like us to consider once again, in maybe just a little different way, the beginnings of faith for Abraham. And then move from there to consider uh, briefly, uh, I've lost note, I've got to look and see what it is, the response of faith. And then finally to consider together, if I can find my note here, what I have it, uh, hang on just one minute, the, I can't find it. So when we get there, we'll be there, okay? So we'll start with those two. Generally speaking, you can lose your way through two, and everybody gets the third one by the time you get there anyway. So, Okay, so let's, let's begin then considering the call or the beginning of Abram's faith. When we, real, when we come to the text, we realize that some time has passed since the flood, but not so much time has passed since the flood so as to result in the death of Noah. When Abraham is called, Noah is still alive. And so he would have been there telling perhaps others what had transpired. And there would have been able people on the face of this earth who would have remembered that great event. When Noah dies, Shem, his father, or his forefather, is still alive. And one of the things that we realize when we come to this text is that regardless of what has happened up to this time, as God has brought judgments none of these judgments have resulted in an altering of the propensity of man. We see that the flood has come, all of mankind, except for Noah and his immediate family, have perished. And yet shortly after the flood, mankind is, is drifting from God. This, this tremendous judgment is forgotten. Can, can you imagine that for just a moment? But it's forgotten. And then we have the judgment that comes at Babel where the people are, are spread abroad upon the face of the th this earth as languages are confused. And there's a, a certain judgment that comes in the midst of that. And yet, man forgets that judgment. And we then come to our text here where Abraham, who was, and I'm going to, it's actually Abram, but I'm going to continue to refer to him as Abraham because I cannot help myself, who is living in Ur. And Ur was a very thriving city. It was a very sophisticated city, as we've considered in the past, where there was great learning and great building and all kinds of things taking place. It was, uh, it was a modern-day society for that time. And we would have not considered it to be backward in, in any way, I don't think, had we lived there. And Abraham is living there in that context, but that context is filled with unbelief. And who are the inhabitants of that land? But they are the inhabitants or the descendants of Shem, who were to be or were the godly line, from whom the people of Israel came. And so here in Ur are the inhabitants of Shem, or the, the descendants of Shem. And what is the context of their faith? But they have completely wandered from the truth. They have wandered from the promises of God. They have wandered from putting a hope in one who would come to be their redeemer. And Abraham, a descendant of Shem, finds himself in a context where he was probably very affluent. He probably had many possessions. He probably had many flocks at that time. His family was probably a family of means. And yet, in the midst of being a family of means, 
he was an individual and his family were individuals who were without faith. They were individuals who were worshiping the moon god. And so here we have, you see, we, we have, we're looking at Shem, don't you see? And here's the promise from Shem will come a Messiah. But here and here in Ur, we have this godly line and, and rampant unbelief is what is resonant within their hearts. And this was the case of Abraham. He is, he's living, having many world possessions, and yet he is living in the context of unbelief. And living in that setting, God comes to him and faith begins. Now we think about the devastation of, of faith in that context today, and we realize that you know, Abraham wasn't walking along some t- at one point in time, and and then and, and someone saw him walking down the street or something like that, and, and they nabbed me and said, Abraham, we have a good Bible study taking place in our home, and we would like you to come and be part of that study. He didn't go down the street and see some sign for some place where he could go and gather together with other people for the worship of the one true God. There was no context that surrounded him that after something significant took place in his, in his life, that he would be discipled and carry on this faith that he had found. There's no context of belief that is there for him. And in the context of no belief, in the context of pagan worship, God comes to him and calls him. He calls him not saying, would you come? But he calls him by saying, go or come to me. It is a command that comes to him. But that command is filled with great love. And Abraham's heart is is captured by the sovereign God and Lord of this universe. And he believes. And that is all that he has. He just just has this voice that has come to him and this belief that's built in his heart. it's, it's, It's kind of like the way God came to, or Jesus came to, to Paul as he was on his way to where was he going? Damascus on what? A horse, of course. And so this is the context of of his calling. The Lord appeared to to Paul, and he believed. And that's the way the call of God comes to us. It comes to us as a sovereign call, and it comes to us surrounded in God's love for us and compassion for us. We have experienced that if we believe. If everyone here believes in that, we have had that encounter. We, We think of many in the context of history, have come to faith after that manner and way. And so this this call comes to Abraham. And God reveals himself to him. And reveals to him enough that he begins to understand what God's plan is in the context of redemptive history. And we know this to be true because we see it revealed to us by the words of Jesus in the Gospel of John. And so this this understanding this appearance, this this regeneration that takes place in his heart changes his life. And God says to Abraham, I want you to go toward a land. And and, and in our text we see in two places, he's, he's, he's actually literally going toward Canaan. And so Abraham announces to his father that he is going to be leaving that context. And he's going to be heading in a direction. He doesn't know where his ultimate 
destined he is, but he's going in a direction, and we know it to be Canaan. And so he, he tells his father. His father determines he's going to go with him. And so they gather together their possessions, their belongings, and they begin their journey towards Canaan, as we know it to be. And the Scriptures tell us that they travel a great distance. You'll see here in chapter 11 that they, they travel this great distance. If you were to uh, look at a map, you could see basically how far it is that they go. And I don't have it in my mind to tell you the exact number of miles. But they've traveled this great distance, and they stop in Haran. Now, some individuals look at this and they think, well, there's a flaw in Abraham because he, sto he stopped in Haran. God has called him to go, and he's on this journey, and he stops in Haran. And, and here we have an example of someone who is perhaps a nominal Christian. Something of the revelation of God's truth has come to him. Maybe he's a professor, but that profession hasn't gone to uh, its ultimate uh, result in a change of life. Or some individual look at this text and they say, you know, he really needed a second work of grace in his heart so that he can, can, could continue on fulfilling what it was that God had called him to do, to go to that land. Well, the Word of God doesn't tell us that there is any reason as to why it is that he stopped. And I don't believe that we should lay any blame at Abraham's feet when it's not merited because there are other places where we can lay blame at his feet and we can see where he faltered. But he just simply stopped. And I think that perhaps one of the reasons why he stopped was because we're told that his father died there. Perhaps as they were on their way that Terah became ill. I, I mean, I know I'm adding to you my opinion here at this point. It's not explicitly stated. But... His father perhaps became ill, and they stopped there. It says that they settled there. They settled there for a while, and then the time came that uh, Terah died. And the Scriptures tell us then that Abram continues his journey. We look then at verse 1 of chapter 12. As we're looking at faith beginnings, or the beginnings of faith, it says, Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go into your country. That word therefore said could be translated God had said or the Lord had said to him that as Abram finds himself in this place, his father now has died. Perhaps there's a reflection back. Now yeah, I remember that God has said this to me. He has told me to do this. I will now, it is time now for me to continue in my sojourn in this direction so that I might end up where it is that God wants me to be. God had said that to him. I believe it's prior. And I do believe there was just one call that was given to Abraham. Now his journey is continuing. And as Abraham is continuing his journey, we then become to a, a place where we see that there's a certain response to faith's beginning that takes place. When God redeems us in his elective purposes... A tremendous transformation takes place, and it is a result of God's sovereign grace touching our lives and hearts. The response that accompanies that is no less sovereign, is no less gracious, and there is a response that always follows that effectual call that takes place in our lives. And that response is a response of obedience that takes place. God comes to Abraham and he causes him to be born again, and there is a response on the part of Abram. And we see this response signified to us 
And I'm, I'm going to skip over the blessing because, Lord willing, if we come back to Genesis and future chapters, we'll look at this blessing that is identified here in verses 2 and 3. But we see that this response is, is, is illustrated for us in the verses that follow in verses 4 and following. It says, and so Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took, look, notice, notice this, Abram took Sarah, his wife, Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions, all they'd gathered, and the people, and they, acqu they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to the land of Canaan. Notice here that in this text, we have a revelation that there is an abandonment, there's an abandonment from what was before. When Abram is leaving, he takes together all of his possessions. He doesn't say, you know, sometime I might go back to where I originated. And so I'll, I'll, I'll purchase a storage unit, or I'll rent a storage unit, and I'll leave some of my belongings there. He didn't say some of the property we owned back here or there was in Iran or before then, that, you know, we'll just kind of maintain that and have someone take care of the property while we're gone. He doesn't uh, do any of those things. But when God calls him to leave and to go, he gathers together everything that is his, and he sets forward on his journey. In other words, Ur is behind him. Haran is behind him. There's no plan to go back. He is only going forward. He gathers together all of his possessions, the scriptures tell us. And I find something interesting here. It identifies some of the people that are there. But as you look at the scripture, it says, and he gathered all of the souls that he had gathered in Haran. You know, this, this is kind of interesting. Is it, it, your text might read people, but it, it could read souls. You, you get this sense that when Abraham was in Haran, and here he is, he, he has herds, he has cattle, flocks, and all kinds of, what's the word I'm looking for? Domestic. Are they domestic? You know, well, animals, farming. And so he's got all of these with him, a small band of people. And while he's there, individuals perhaps were asking, why are you here? Or maybe he was talking with us is why he was there. And individuals were gathered to him as a result of his sharing what it was that had transpired in his life. I believe that there was a certain sense of a verbal witness that went forward to those that were around him. And as individuals began to believe in this faith that he had possessed, they gathered themselves to him and they helped him along the way as they helped him take care of the livestock that, were, that he possessed. And so this, this is taking place and there's a, a certain gathering of souls that is transpiring. And so we see that in the context of our believing in Christ, we like Abraham are effectually called, but there is a response that takes place in our hearts, a response that we exhibit. There's a response that is seen where we come to this place and we are willing to sell all that we have to follow Him. Perhaps not selling all of our possessions, but figuratively speaking, we come to this place where we want to follow Christ and we will, and that is our focus, the kingdom of God. And investment in the world is left behind. It is giving our all to the Lord Jesus Christ. There is, no, there is no lordship or saviorhood of Christ without the lordship of Christ. 
is forsaking all to follow him. And, and Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And the heart that has been born again hears that clarion call of God and says, I will follow you. You know, we oftentimes look at Peter. I was just reminded of Peter this morning as I was thinking about this response to this sovereign call upon our lives. And I thought about Peter. Remember when Peter was in the garden with Jesus when the soldiers came to take them? Let's, let's go back a little before they're gathered together in the upper room. The Lord says, all, all of you will forsake me. Remember, oh, Peter. He said, oh, Lord, not, not I. These, these be, these beside me at the table, they, they will forsake you, but I, I won't forsake you. No, not me. And Jesus says, Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you. We look at the weakness of Peter, and then we, we think, here they are then later on, and they're in the garden, and, and these soldiers come to take Jesus away for the trial. Remember the account? What was it that Peter did? They came to take him away, and Peter reached, and he grabbed a sword, and he cut off the ear of a servant, of a soldier. You know, we, you know, I can't help but to look at Peter at that moment and I don't know what all was going on in his mind and heart then. But as I thought about this morning, I said, Lord, give me that heart. Because Peter, when he grabbed that sword, there may have been things misplaced, but there was a declaration that, Lord, I'll follow you. Wherever you go, I'll give my all to you, even if it's the taking of my life. But I'll stand with you and for you here. Do you, do you see that in the text? Do you see it? And when God redeems us and saves us, there is this response that begins to resonate to our hearts. Where in realization of what it is that he has done for us, we say, I will give my all for you, O Lord. And we cry out to him. We say, Lord, lead me back to that place over and over. I'm prone to wander. But lead me back to that place where that is my daily experience and moment-by-moment -moment experience. You know, it's said of, it's said of uh, Abraham that he, he lived his life. In Romans, the fourth chapter, he lived his life before God. Isaiah 53 says that Jesus lived his life before God. It means to live in his presence with the awareness of that presence, to live with that before us. And that has an impact upon our, our lives and our hearts. So now we come finally to the last moment, last point, and, and that is since I can't remember what my point was, I'm going to just label it now like a, a certain fruitfulness. 
that takes place in our lives, a result of faith. Abraham is here identified as one who is obedient. He is one who does the works of God. He obeys God. The Word of God tells us that when we come into the kingdom of God, we become the aroma or the fragrance of Christ, right? It tells us in 2 Corinthians, uh, 2 Corinthians, the fourth chapter. It says that. You can look it up and see if that's correct, that is correct. But we become the aroma of Christ. Jesus said in Matthew, the fifth chapter, verses 14 and 15, he says, you are the light of the world. A city that is set upon a hill cannot be hidden. And then he goes on to say in that text, and he said, so let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and the glory of your Father who is in heaven. They might see your good works. In Matthew, the 25th chapter, which was read earlier to us this morning by Keith, he reads and he refers us to the great white throne judgment where Jesus comes. And we looked at that, I think, just briefly last week. And, and all the nations are gathered before him and he separates the sheep from the goats. And there in that context, Jesus says these words that Keith read to us this morning. He says to those that are on the right, come in to the blessedness of my Father and inherit the kingdom of God that is prepared for you. For when I was hungry, you fed me food. When I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see, your, see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as much as you did it to one of the least of these, you did it unto me. You notice here in this text, and I, I don't know how many of you have heard about the social gospel. It used to be individuals used to talk about social. I'm not talking about the social gospel this morning. But you'll notice here in this text that Jesus identifies certain works accompanying those who believe. That you did it to the least of these, you did it unto me. In 2 Corinthians, the, 10th, or the 5th chapter, verses 10 and 11, which we looked at last week together, the Word of God says, all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Do you notice here he says, for what is done in the body. What is done, what is done in the body. Jesus says in John the 5th chapter, verses 27 and following, that judgment has been given to me. And in the resurrection of the last day, the righteous will rise up to the resurrection of life for what they have done. And the evil 
to the resurrection of the judgment for what they have done. That's a paraphrase. But notice here, there's a reference to what is done. That there's acknowledgement as to what is done. In Ephesians, the second chapter, verse 10, the Scriptures tell us, we are His workmanship created in Christ for good works. So the Scriptures are saying that if we come to Christ, there's a certain doing that takes place as a result of that. In these verses I've read you this morning, some could misread it and misunderstand it and think, well, you know, justification is the basis of what we do. But we are not justified apart from grace. But what we do does stand in the day of judgment. And what believers do in the day of judgment. By the way, can you be condemned for anything you've done in the day of judgment? No. But can you be commended for what is done? Yes. Because Jesus declares that that is the case. It's not, it's not that we earn something by what we do. But there is an acknowledgement that as a fruitfulness of grace working in our lives, things are done for the sake of the glory of God. And to me, this becomes something that is very exciting as a believer and as a pastor, former pastor, that I can share with others that there is a value in your doing. Not in the context of your earning something from God, but in the context of your giving glory to the Lord. Your doing will be imperfect, but offered through Christ is a fragrance to God and an aroma to those that are around you. Now, it's kind of interesting that in this text that we looked at in Matthew 25, which was, I'm hoping is a natural progression from our looking in Genesis uh, here, uh, 11 and 12, that individuals who do certain things don't even realize what it is that they've done. You know, say, well, when did we do these things? And now I find myself wondering, how am I going to wrap this up in a few minutes? <laughs> we are all gifted in different ways, aren't we? It's been said here this, this morning, that's the case. But if there, we have been born again, there are things that we have to offer in the context of the world in which we live. We looked at, a couple weeks ago, the parable of, uh, you know, the, the, the tenants. One was uh, given five measures and another two and another one, and five and two invested theirs and multiplied. The one who was given none buried them. We, we are like those tenants. We are in this earth, and God has given us a certain context in which we live. Some individuals find themselves living in a very broad and spacious place, and the, 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 the land is fertile and well watered. There's much that is coming in, and then there are others that find themselves in much more straight and narrow and tight places where there is difficulty and trials and despair and things like that that come a person's way. And the place doesn't seem to be wide, doesn't seem to be wide, broad at all. And yet, 
Whether an individual's place is wide and broad or a person's place is straight and narrow, God places each of us in the place where he has placed us to live for him. In that context, to bear a witness for him, whatever that witness may be, to the glory of Christ. And there is no place that is greater than another place, but everyone is assigned a place to live for him. And what it is that we do in that context promotes the glory of the Lord. Because we are redeemed. And so, some individuals may not be necessarily gifted so much to proclaim the full gospel to others, but there are times when in a context you can say a word for Christ that is an encouragement to others. Marcia, this past week, she's not with me today. I feel kind of like half here. Maybe I am. I don't know. You can tell me later. <laughs> but just this past week, in the context of work, someone said something to her, and she was just able to share something from the Word of God with that individual. And that was a work that was done. I went to the hospital a week and a half ago, and an individual helped me because I couldn't find my way. I was at Johns Hopkins. If you've been there, you, you realize you can really get lost in that place pretty quick. And I was asking directions. I was going along. This one gentleman helped me as we were going along, and I thanked him, and I went my way, and I found where it was that I needed to go. And I was coming back, and I was coming back. I saw him standing at the desk, and I thought, you know, I've got to say something to this guy. And I went up to him, and I said, I said, thank you so much for helping me. I found where it was that I was going, and I shared some words, and I encouraged him. I kind of went on my way. You, you should have seen that guy's face light up when I said that to him. You know, it's even like a kind word is a sowing of something because we sow it for the sake of Christ. It's not, it's not necessarily that someone has come into the kingdom because we did that, but there is grace that is dispensed because we have been a vessel of that grace. I can remember living in, in Lindsay, Ohio, and we had individuals live in that town, and they were uh, getting older and older as I was getting older. You know, and they, they were, Some of these people lived in homes that were... Uh, really beginning to get pretty run down. I remember old Mrs. Grundy who lived across the street. She was a shut-in. Now, I don't think I said ten words to that woman before she died as I was growing up there. But you know what I knew about that woman? She loved Christ. And I remember her as one who was in the midst of destitution who believed God. See, that's, that's a monument to the grace of God. That's a monument to the glory of God. That is a witness to the glory of God. And wherever you find yourself and you express love and care for someone else, it's a monument to the grace and the glory of God. We look at the Apostle Paul and we see, here's man, man, his reward in heaven is going to really be great. I mean, look at all the things that he did. And he did wondrous things, didn't he? His, his reward is going to really be tremendous and great. <laughs> but no, I, I look at myself and what have I done? Context where I am. What, what do I have done? I've done those things. I just have to live for Christ day by day. But to live for Christ in the context of where you are is what God calls you to do. He calls you to be faithful 
and the context where he has placed you. And the word of God tells us this, that in that last day, many who are first will be last and those who are last will be first because God does not evaluate people on the basis of the way men and people evaluate them, but he has a whole different scale in the way that he evaluates his people. And today, if you are born again, God's grace has worked in your heart. And live your life before him that individuals might give praise to God for the works that you have done.